0: Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to read the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also were compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. title of the message tonight is This One Thing. This One Thing, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity, this privilege to stand before these people and open your holy word. Lord, I pray that you would make this time profitable Use this time, dear God, to speak to hearts, work in lives. We'll thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The term life-changing is without a doubt overused today. I understand that. It's used kind of casually and commonly. But I honestly believe if you can get a hold of one simple truth tonight that we'll be going over and live in light of it, I believe it will be life-changing for you. I want to speak to you about having the right focus and keeping the right focus in your life and in your ministry. And hopefully, if you're a part of this church, a regular part of this church, hopefully you have a ministry someplace in some aspect of this church's many ministries. I hope you're plugged in. I hope you're involved. And to have that be a reality in your life, to have the right focus, we have to first of all know what our focus is supposed to be. And then secondly, we have to focus to not get distracted. Daniel 1.8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That means he made up his mind. He made a determination in his life. He was not going to defile himself. He was focused. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No man that warreth entangleth himself, with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Focused. Focused on the goal, not being distracted by the things that are uh, all around us. Mark 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus was telling the parable of the sower of the seed or the soil, verse 18, he says, These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. We have those same distractions today, those same things that can come in and crowd out the word of God and and change our focus and get us off track so easily. Philippians 3, verse 13, Paul said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If I were to ask you, what is your purpose in life? Or what is your purpose in ministry? You could probably give a very good answer tonight. If I asked you, why are you here? What is your most important objective? You could answer those questions. We all could. But I think that sometimes our answers might be more what we think people want to hear, more than they bear resemblance to how we spend our time and to how we minister. The Westminster Catechism, upon which many doctrinal creeds and statements of faith are based, opens with this question. What is the chief end of man? Now, if you were raised in a liturgical church, you probably know the answer that is then given. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, if that is true, and I believe that we would all agree that it is, how much is that a reality in your life? And in your ministry. The truth is that we usually get the end. And the means. And the byproduct. All mixed up. It's vitally important. That we understand the difference. Between the end. And the means. And the byproduct. It will make a major difference in how we live our lives. And how we conduct our ministries. If we have all of that sorted out correctly let me illustrate the end the goal the objective in life in my life in your life and anybody's life that is saved is supposed to be to glorify God Isaiah 43, 7, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. This people have I formed for myself, he says in verse 21, that they shall show forth my praise. 2 Thessalonians 1, 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.11, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified. Jeremiah 13.11, be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. And John gives us a glimpse of what is to come in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 as they surround the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And Psalm 115 once says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. Ephesians 3.21 says, unto him, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even in the basic mundane things of life, eating and drinking, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Colossians three seventeen. whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So, so that is the end. That is the goal. That is the objective. The means to that end is made up of how I live life. How I conduct myself. How I conduct my ministry. How you conduct your ministry. How you live your life. What I do, how I do, and how I do it, why I do it. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica saying, furthermore then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. How ye ought to do it. How ye ought to walk. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3.10 to the believers to take heed how you build thereupon. Every one of us is building something. We're building a building of wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, precious stones. And Paul would say, take heed how you build your life. The byproduct, so that's the, the means, the byproduct is explained in many verses in the Bible. In fact, all through the Bible, in hundreds of verses we find the byproduct. Deuteronomy 5 29, oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and, and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Deuteronomy 6 24, and the Lord, Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. There's a bad success, by the way. And sometimes people get so successful, Christians get so successful in business pretty soon they're missing church because their business is doing so well. That's a bad success. But when we focus on the Word of God and let it saturate our souls, the Bible says He'll make our way prosperous and we'll have good success. Isaiah 32, 17, and the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Isaiah 48, 17 and 18, thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God which teacheth thee to profit which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hast hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And Psalm 1, 1 through 3, Blessed is the man, and the word blessed means happy. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he should be like the tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Psalm sixteen, eleven. 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. In Proverbs 3, verses 13 through 18, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies. And all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone. Happy is everyone that retaineth her. Psalm 84:11: The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he should be like the heath in the desert. That little, that little bush, that when you come across it in the desert, you're not even sure it's still alive. It just looks dead. There's no life. There's no vibrancy. That man that trusts in man, he'll be like that withered up bush in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. But... Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he should be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river. And shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaves shall be green, and shall not be careful or full of care or anxiety in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Psalm eighty-one sixteen. with honey out of the rock, should I have satisfied thee. And we could look tonight literally at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more verses like that, but I think you get the idea. The byproduct. Peace, contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, joy, blessings, success, pleasure, meaning in life, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now here's our problem. Here's our problem. We have a great tendency to get things all turned around, to get everything messed up, mixed up. And then we begin to pursue after the byproducts and we make them the end. We begin to seek our own happiness rather than God's glory. And then the end gets changed into the means and the byproduct becomes the end and whereas we started serving God, we can very easily, in essence, end up serving ourselves. And this problem is more pervasive in independent fundamental Baptist churches than we care to admit. We can be doctrinally correct, we can know our doctrine right down the line. Our churches are filled with people who know doctrine but have these things all turned around. Let me give you, for sake of time, just one example. There are hundreds. Proverbs 13, 19 says, The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. That's a biblical principle. Man was made to work. Even before the fall, man was made to work. God had him dress and keep the garden. God could have made the bushes and trees where they needed no trimming, no pruning, no taking care, but God made man to work. Proverbs sixteen twenty four says, "'He that handleth a matter wisely shall find good.'" There's a tremendous satisfaction in a job well done. It is intensified when it is done for God. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this principle. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, "'The sleep of a laboring man is sweet.'" Proverbs 3, verse 21 says, "'Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall there be life unto thy soul, and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, thy foot shall not stumble.'" When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, health to the bones. So, I'm made to work and follow God. If I do that, there is a pleasantness. There is a sweetness to life. Getting the job done right, handling my responsibilities well, following biblical principles and what I do, how I act, how I speak, all of those things. The result of all of that, the Bible calls sweet, rewarding, refreshing, fulfilling. But listen to this: Proverbs 9:17. Stolen waters are sweet. Proverbs 20:17, bread of deceit is sweet to a man. So wait wait a minute. He gets the same results? He gets sweetness too by being deceitful, by being dishonest, by hanging around the wrong crowd. He's living only for the byproduct that doesn't care how he gets it and he gets the same results? Well, no, not exactly. Proverbs 9:17 and 18 says stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and that our guests are in the depths of hell. Proverbs 20, 17 says, bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. And so when you mix up the end, the means, and the byproduct, it's never a happy ending. That would go against the very nature of how God established this universe. One of the characteristics of a fool is that he lives only for the byproduct. For him, the end is the byproduct. Proverbs twenty-one, seventeen: he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. He's living for the byproduct. He's got to have it and he wants it now, instant gratification. Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty: a faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. Proverbs 23, 4, labor not to be rich. Proverbs 15, 14, the heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge, but the mouth of fools feedeth on foolishness. He wants to be satisfied. He wants to be gratified immediately. He's going to seek after whatever will bring him pleasure right now. He wants to be happy right now. He wants to have a good time right now. Proverbs 18:1 and 2 says, through desire a man, Having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom, but a fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Now those two verses help clarify the issue for us. Uh, a man has to have a desire to do right, to gain wisdom, to serve God. And so if he has that desire, he's going to separate himself. He's going to separate himself from fools because they're going to work against his objective of doing right, gaining wisdom, glorifying God. He's going to separate himself from everything that's going to pull him away from doing right. So he has that initial desire to do right, so he's going to separate himself from that which is going to fight against that desire. But the next verse says a fool hath no delight in that. He has no delight in understanding. He has no delight in wisdom. He has no delight in doing right. He just wants his heart to discover himself. Discover itself. So literally he lives for right now. Wants to be happy right now. It doesn't matter what the future holds. He wants to be happy right now. He wants to have a good time right now. Now suppose dads. You decide this summer. You're going to take the whole family to Washington, D.C. You want to see the Capitol. You want to see the White House. You want to see the monuments go to the Smithsonian's, And you just want to have a great time with the family. And, and so as you're laying out your, your vacation time, you, you make a decision. We're going to go to Washington, D.C. for our, for our uh, vacation. But you have to decide now, how are you going to get there? So, you could go by plane, just hop on a plane at LAX and, and land there, just not too far from the capital. Uh, take about five hours of flying, five and a half hours, get your rental car, and then you're, you're free to go and do whatever you want to do in that two weeks vacation. You could even take the train, you could take the Amtrak, and you could get there. You could, you could go by bus, you could even literally go by ship and get very close right there to Washington, D.C. Uh, you could take an RV. You could take the family minivan. And so let's just say you decide, hey, we're going to take the family minivan. We're going to go to Washington, D.C. So the end, the goal, the objective is to get to Washington, D.C. and see the Capitol and see all the sights. You're going to take the minivan. So you load up the wife and kids, and everybody gets in the car, and you head off down the road. And everybody's just having a good time. Everybody's excited, singing songs, you're telling jokes telling stories, remembering things, you're stopping and getting all the snacks and you're just eating all the chips and drinking all the sodas and stopping at every fast food restaurant and you're just having a wonderful time. So this goes on the whole three, four days, five days it takes you to get to Washington D.C. and and, uh, just jokes and songs and stories and snacks till you're sick and you're just, just having a great time. Get to Washington, D.C., you spend a few days there going through the Smithsonian's, going to the museums, going to the zoo, going to all the monuments. Then you jump back in the minivan, and you head back home, and it's just more of the same. Jokes, songs, laughter, stopping and, and, and getting more junk food, and just, just, you're having a wonderful time. So you get home, and everybody agrees, man, that was the best vacation we've ever had. So the next year, dad gets the family together, says, you remember how much fun we had last year, vacation? Oh, yeah, that was great. He said, well, I got to thinking, we can actually save a lot of money, and we could recreate that vacation. This year, instead of going place, we're just going to sit in the van in the driveway for like 12 hours a day, we're going to tell jokes. We're going to sing songs. I bought a bunch of snack food. We're going to eat popcorn and chips and drink sodas. And we're just going to, and we're going to go out there every day. And then we'll just come back in and sleep in our own beds. And then we just go out there in the morning. We'll do it again for 12 hours. And don't worry about what the neighbors think. We're going to have a good time. You would have gone from the best vacation ever to the worst vacation ever. And by day three, the kids are going to be like, can we just stay in the house? Do we even have to go sit in the van? And What happened? All of that was the byproduct. Traveling there, the means was the the vehicle you took, the, the minivan, but the byproduct, all the fun, the stories, the jokes, the laughter, the singing, all of that was the byproduct on the journey. But as soon as you make the byproduct the end... You mess everything up. There are a lot of Christians that have messed everything up in their lives. And they can't figure out why the Christian life isn't that satisfying. It's not that fulfilling. We have people in our churches and not just teenagers who can spend five hours playing video games. Or on Facebook or watching YouTube videos or surfing the internet. And they struggle to spend five minutes in the word of God. No exaggeration. I had a man call me in my office, wanted to talk to the pastor, not a person, not a family that comes to our church. He said, I, he said, my, my wife watches YouTube videos 12 hours a day. He says, She doesn't clean the house anymore. She doesn't fix me any meals. She just watches YouTube videos 12, 13 hours a day. And he was getting kind of frustrated. Those people are trying to get the byproduct they've made it the end. Instant gratification. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 10, Solomon says, Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. My heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. And all the labor that I'd labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. You know, the word vanity means waste. It's a waste. Vexation of spirit is frustration. So Solomon began to live for the byproduct. Whatever he wanted, he got. Instant gratification. He wants it right now. He's going to get it. He's going to live for that. And, and, And as he looks back on that portion of his life, he said it was all vanity. It was all in, in vain. In fact, he starts his, his book, Ecclesiastes 1, Vanity of Vanities, he the preacher, all is vanity. He says it's all a waste of time. Now, Pastor McMaines had homiletics and hermeneutics in Bible calls like I did, and they said, as a preacher, your opening statement's important. Solomon's opening statement is, man, everything's just a waste. Everything's a waste. All is vanity. Vexation of spirit. I'm so frustrated. In, in, in Ecclesiastes 2, 1, he said, I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter it is, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planned trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. Okay, Solomon, so you had everything what did it do for you? Verse 17, therefore, I hated life. A man that had everything, lacked for nothing. He said, it's vanity, it's a waste, it's vexation of spirit, it's frustrating. He said, I hated life. He said, all of this is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Why? Because Solomon made the mistake that so many Christians make of beginning to make the byproduct, the end, the focus, the goal of his life. God never intended that we live for the byproduct because it cannot satisfy when it becomes the end. Ecclesiastes 7 Verse 4, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools, the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Ecclesiastes eleven nine. he says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Did you want to just live for everything you see, and let's just laugh and party on, he says one day God's going to bring you into judgment. The byproduct becomes all important. The end doesn't matter so much. In fact, ultimately we lose sight of the end altogether. The true end. What's supposed to be the end. And by the way, you can do that in ministry very easily. You start out, your purpose is to glorify God. It's easy to lose that purpose. You sing on this platform and your goal, your objective, your prayer is, God, I want to glorify you. And you're nervous and your knees shake and you're prayed up. Then after you've sung a few times and somebody comes and says, hey, have you ever thought about making a CD? You're really good. And the next time you sing, you're up here singing, thinking this will sound good on my CD. What happened? No longer is it about glorifying God. It becomes about you. Spurgeon one time preached a particularly powerful message At the end of the message, as he stepped down from the pulpit, a lady came rushing up to him and said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I I wanted to tell you. I wanted to be the first to tell you. That's one of the greatest messages that's ever been preached. And Spurgeon looked at her and said, ma'am, you're not the first to tell me. The devil started telling me that halfway through. You could very easily lose sight. We started teaching a Sunday school class because our burden was for little boys and girls and we want them to know the Lord. And then pretty soon we want to have the biggest class. Or somebody comes along and says, man, ever since you started teaching my little David, he wants to be in Sunday school every week. You're such a great teacher. And now all of a sudden it's not so much about God anymore. It's about being the best teacher and keeping that reputation and making sure all the parents think I'm the best teacher. We can lose sight of what the end's supposed to be so easily. Gets hijacked. Matthew 6:33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. We forget that we are to glorify God. We lose our focus. You remember the church and in, in Ephesus and your pastor is going to be talking about Acts chapter 20 he said when he comes back and in Acts chapter 20 you find Paul has poured his heart and his life into this church at Ephesus for three years I ceased not to warn everyone day and night with tears and he poured out his heart a mature church a, a strong church you fast forward one generation go to Revelation 2 I know thy works and labor and patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil Thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not and has found them liars and hast borne and has patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Boy, it sounds like still a good church. What's the next verse say? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You forgot the whole purpose for doing what you're supposed to do. You're working hard. You're doctrinally correct. You recognize heresy. You've separated from it. You've got all the doctrine down. You've got all the separation down. But you don't have a heart for God anymore. That happens gradually. It happens incrementally. It happens when we lose sight of what the end is supposed to be. And so here's, the, here's a generation, Acts chapter 20, still a strong church. One generation later, they still have the doctrine. They still can recite the creeds. They still can tell you their statement of faith. But it's no longer about God. It's no longer about loving Him. It's no longer about pleasing Him. It's no longer about bringing Him glory. They lost their first love. Again, Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. This has been such a problem through the years with mankind that you go through the Old Testament, you see so many warnings about this, the New Testament warnings about it. Joshua two five, take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cleave unto Him and to serve Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. For we're not careful, we'll lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing, why we're supposed to be doing it, even in the ministry, especially in the ministry. Do you understand the tremendous protection for your church and for you as an individual, for your ministry, when you can stay focused on what the end is supposed to be? To glorify God. When you lose sight of that. You're headed for trouble. And all of a sudden things start shifting. In your ministry. And all of a sudden it's to build the biggest bus route. Or the biggest Sunday school class. Or whatever it might be. And it's not can I glorify God through this. And a lot of young fundamentalists have stumbled here because when the goal, the focus, the end is to build a bigger church or build a bigger this or a better that or a newer this and the end is no longer to glorify God, the means start to change. And our concern is not, is God glorified or it's will this work? Will this increase the size of my bus route or my class, a church or whatever it might be? And so we end up with churches that more resemble nightclubs and karaoke bars or comedy clubs than they resemble churches all across this land. And I promise you that none of those pastors of those churches made those decisions to change out of a desire to glorify God more. None of them did. It was what will bring people in. Interesting thing in the ministry of Jesus, when when the crowds got bigger, Jesus' preaching got stronger. It got harder. You look at John 6, 20,000 people came approximately. He fed them. The next day they show up again. They're all excited. And Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm glad you came back. It's good to see you guys. Come on. He said, I know why you're here. You came not because you saw the multitudes, the, the miracles, but because you ate of the meat and were filled. And then he proceeded to preach one of the hardest messages. So hard. The Bible says, then went many of his disciples back and walked no more with him. They all left. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, will you also go away? They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? That was the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So you could say the morning message, there were 20,000 people. Sunday night, only 12 came back. Most of us say, I'm never preaching that message again. But that's what Jesus did. When the crowds got large, he started preaching hard. He wasn't trying to be, build a big crowd. He, he was preaching the truth and preaching it straight. Matthew sixteen eighteen. he said, I will build my church. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God gave the increase. I was doing a series in my church on, on fake worship, because we call a lot of things worship today that aren't really worship. So I went to a lot of churches that had Saturday night services. because I obviously, can't go do research on Sunday morning, I'm a pastor. So I went on Saturday nights to all these churches after a while, my wife's like, honey, I don't want to go to you, with you anymore to these things. Can I stay home? I said, sure. So I went to a church. And I came back. And I said, honey, they, they had about 14 songs. I said, they, they didn't have five minutes of Bible preaching, literally not five minutes at this one church. But I did get fudge, and I did get popcorn, and I could have had pop coffee, but it's too late at night, so I didn't take the coffee. That was church. That was their idea of church. I, I went to another church. They literally had spoke, smoke machines. Strobe lights, all of that, you you, you more resembled a a nightclub. And and that's what passes for church these days. Uh, Do those pastors sit down and say, you know, I, I think a smoke machine will glorify God. We haven't had a smoke machine. Let's bring God glory. No, glorifying God isn't on the radar screen. But even in independent, fundamental Baptist churches, if you're not careful in your Sunday school class, in your walk with God, in your relationships, in whatever your ministry is, you can quickly and easily lose sight of what your focus is supposed to be. And it can all be about you being popular and being well-liked and well-received, not as God-glorified. In your individual walk with God, your devotions, is it that God might be glorified? Again, the emphasis, 1 Corinthians 3.10, take heed, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Psalm 127.1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it They can still get something built, but they're laboring in vain. Where did our overemphasis on numbers in independent Baptist churches come from? It came from getting the end, the means, and the byproduct all mixed up. It's not about us. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. John 12, 43 says, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And we say, oh, those Pharisees. But listen to me. Every one of us struggle with that. Every one of us, if we're not careful. 1 John 4, 5, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. that, That might be pleasing to people, but does it glorify God? Luke 16, 15, He said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. That means there are some things that are going to be attractive, some things that are going to be popular, some things that are going to be accepted with men, but they're an abomination in the sight of God. They don't bring him glory. Don't miss that. Second Corinthians ten seventeen: He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Paul would write to the church of Thessalonica, saying, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others. Do you know the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? It wasn't stealing. They didn't steal. Except steal God's glory. They didn't steal money. They sold property. And then they lied about how much they sold it for because they wanted everybody in the church to think that they brought all the money in. It would be like if you sold a house and you sold the house for $700,000 and your church is doing a big fundraising campaign, and you come and you make a big presentation of, Pastor, we sold our house, and here it is. Here's the proceeds from it. Here's $400,000, and yet you got $700,000 for it. Well, you're perfectly fine keeping that $300,000 if you want, but when you pretend that you're giving all of it, that's where the sin came in with Ananias and Sapphira. And and Peter would say to him, while it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not of thine own power? You could have kept this. You could have just tithed off it. You didn't have to say all this. But so what was their sin? Their sin was being more concerned with looking good than being good. Looking spiritual than being spiritual. Now let me ask you this. If God were still killing people for that sin, how many of us would even be here tonight? More concerned with looking spiritual than being spiritual more concerned with looking good than being good. That was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Paul would say in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the the world. He said, though I preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16, I have nothing to glory of, nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The Bible says, Proverbs 25, 7, for men to search their own glory is not glory. We're, we're out of time. But you go through the Bible, for instance, you go through 1 Peter 2, where it talks about you suffering as a, as a servant, working for a, a boss, a froward boss. And he's going to treat you badly. It says, for conscience toward God, you suffer wrongfully with conscience toward God, you realize, hey, God will be glorified by me answering in a godly way to my mean boss. My boss is not fair because I want God to be glorified. But if you have the end, the means, and the byproduct all mixed up, you're going to bristle when that boss treats you unfairly because he's taking away your happiness. He's not taking away God's glory. You can glorify God more in adversity than you can in prosperity. So if your goal is God be glorified, your boss is overbearing and unfair. You say, hey, if, if I can respond as a Christian, I ought to respond, God gets more glory. This is actually a good deal. But if you're living for the byproduct and your boss is a jerk and he treats you wrong, you say, hey, this isn't fair. I'm going to human relations. I'm going to the, the union steward. I'm going, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Why? Because I want my byproduct. I want it now. Changes every area of your life. When you say, you know what, I want, I want God to be glorified. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce stood before his Philadelphia church and explained they had been diagnosed with liver cancer. He said, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who's able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. He's been given a diagnosis, he's going to die. Rather than say, church, pray that God would spare my life. He said, pray for the glory of God. He said, if you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say wherein in all of history as God most glorified himself, he did it at the cross of Jesus Christ and it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross though he could have. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God is not the only one who is in charge. God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. That's what he could say with the diagnosis of you're about to die. Let God be glorified through all that. I'll close with this illustration, we're out of time. But many years ago, a few years back, there was a writer by the name of Hunter Thompson. He advocated a hedonistic lifestyle. He was a famous writer. He wrote, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. That was a lie, by the way, as as time would tell live out where the real winds blow sleep late have fun get wild drink whiskey and drive fast on empty streets with nothing in mind like most others he said i was a seeker he said this at another time in his life at the same time i shared a dark suspicion that the life we were leading was a lost cause that we were all actors kidding ourselves along on a senseless odyssey all my life my heart has sought a thing i cannot name he said i would feel trapped real trapped in this life if i didn't know i could commit suicide at any time He wrote that 25 years before he died. He finally committed suicide at age 67. One of his idols was Ernest Hemingway, Hemingway, who also committed suicide, a gunshot to the head. In 2003, he said, I would never recommend my life to others. That would be cruel and irresponsible and wrong, I think. This is after a life of advocating his life to others, a lifelong, and people admired him. He was so funny, so witty, so wild and crazy. In his suicide note, he wrote, No more games, no more fun. Sixty-seven. That is seventeen years past fifty. Seventeen more than I needed or wanted. Boring. No fun. Relax. This won't hurt. He wrote for. Four, he lived for four more days after writing this note, and four days later he committed suicide at five forty-two p.m. on February the twentieth. So popular and influential was he that his funeral, which was closed to the general public, was attended by scores of. A list celebrities, Johnny Depp, Senator George McGovern, Senator John Kerry, Lyle Lovett, Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes, Jack Nicholson, Charlie Rose, Bill Murray, Sean Penn, and on and on and on, all the rich and famous. They all showed up to pay tribute to a man who spent his whole life living by the byproduct, living for the byproduct, and died as he lived, miserable, miserable. Don't worry about the byproduct, focus on the end. You live for the byproduct, I guarantee you you'll never have the fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction from your Christian life that God intended you to have. And you'll walk around and say well, what am I missing?" And maybe after a couple of years you'll just wander away because it never really was all it was cracked up to be. But you never really lived the Christian life if you didn't live it the way God intended. Your focus is to be on the end and utilizing the right means to that end. Keep it all in the right balance, keep it all in the right order, then you'll know what it means to have an abundant life you'll experience the reality of thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 85, 6, the psalmist said, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? And when we do that, all of life is sweeter, more peaceful, better, fulfilling. We're living life as God intended us to live. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty.